Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is John. I'm in New York at the moment. And here, yesterday, news came that a grand jury has indicted Donald Trump. This is historic, to use a word that was rather overused during the Trump administration. It makes him the first president or former president ever to have been indicted. If you're interested to hear more about that, then I was on The Intelligence this morning, The Economist's daily podcast, talking about the indictment, the legal case, what it all means. But this week on Checks and Balance, we're sticking to our prior plan. This is the podcast we recorded before that news broke, and it's about Chicago's mayoral election, which happens next week and is, I think, incredibly interesting and worth paying attention to anyway. We also wanted to read the full indictment before making a checks episode for you. So we'll go away and do that, and then we'll cover the indictment of Donald Trump in next week's Checks and Balance. Right, on with the pod. In the 19th century, Chicago was booming. The city's residents, factories and slaughterhouses created mountains of human, commercial and animal waste. It was all dumped in the Chicago River. But this flowed into Lake Michigan, the source of the city's drinking water. It was a public health catastrophe. Typhoid, dysentery and cholera put Chicago's future at risk. So, city leaders found a fix. They carved a canal deep into the earth, which sloped downhill as it travelled west and linked the Chicago and Des Plaines rivers. This pulled the flow of dirty water away from Lake Michigan and out towards the Mississippi Basin. The course of the river was reversed, and with it, the course of the city's future. Next week, Chicago's voters have a choice to make. But despite the drumbeat of gloom about their city, Chicago's politics are much less polluted than they once were. I'm John Prideaux, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what's at stake in the Chicago mayor's race. When residents of Chicago head to the polls next week, they'll be choosing between two candidates for mayor. They'll also be choosing between two opposing ideological wings of the Democratic Party. One contender is conservative, for a Chicago Democrat, and backed by the police union. The other is a progressive, who once called to defund the police. The polls are close, and whoever wins will have lots of nasty things in his entree. Why does the Chicago mayoral election matter outside of the city limits? (music) 
I'm in New York this week, and with me on the podcast are Idris Kaloun, who's in his usual perch in Washington, D.C., but is just back from a trip to the Windy City, and John Fasman, who's in upstate New York today, but is a Chicago native. Idris, how are things in D.C.? What's going on? Uh, things are well here. The cherry blossoms are in full bloom, so it's one of the best times of the year to be here. And we're only three months away from summer, in which uh, D.C. becomes uninhabitable. And Fasman, I know how things are with you because we had lunch yesterday and you did one of the most John Fasman things you've ever done to me, which is we walked out the door of the office and you said, I know a great kosher Uzbek restaurant a few blocks from here and marched me and John Shields off there. But for the benefit of our listeners, how are you doing? I am very well. This is my first week out of the hosting chair of The Intelligence. And one of the pleasures of this week has been listening to my replacement, Ore Oganbi, who is just doing a wonderful job. You're right. Ore is doing a great job in The Intelligence. Can I I ask what Uzbek food consists of? It's great. It is a lot of kebabs, a lot of pickles, a lot of crispy bread. You can think of it in terms of its geography. It's a very nice marriage of uh, Russian food and Middle Eastern food. We're not talking about food this week, but we are going to be talking about one of your other passions, the city of Chicago, where you were born, your dad was born, right? And your grandmother. So there have been phasmans in Chicago for the past hundred years or more. That's right. My grandmother's family came basically right off the boat from Ukraine to Chicago. And she grew up in Humboldt Park on the city's west side. My dad grew up in Rogers Park on the far north side. And I was born in Lincoln Park and lived there until I was quite young. But I spent every summer until I was 13 with my grandparents, who by then had moved to Skokie, just outside the city. I never lived there as an adult, but my brother and sister both did. They were in they were in Bucktown and Wicker Park and Pilsen for a while. I've got cousins all over the city, and it's a place I just I love very deeply. I live and die with the Chicago Cubs, mostly die, unfortunately. Well, another person who really likes the city is our Midwest correspondent, Daniel Knowles, who's a transplant from London. He's based in Chicago. And since he moved there 18 months ago, his coverage of the city for us has largely been more positive than most. I began our conversation by asking him why that is. The city has some big problems, and not all of the stories that come out from the outside about it are wrong. But I think there is this kind of undercurrent that Chicago also has some incredible opportunities that not every city in America has. And it has some problems that, frankly, are the problems of success. There's a lot of angst about gentrification here, which you know comes from the fact that an awful lot of young new graduates getting good jobs and moving here. A lot of jobs are being created. Chicago has the fastest growing city centre kind of region of, of any big city in the United States. It's been able to attract jobs back from the suburbs to downtown. And downtown, you know, you go around neighbourhoods like the West Loop or the South Loop, there's so many new apartments going up and new bars and restaurants and things. And I think that kind of gets lost in some of the discussion of Chicago's problems. And Chicago's problems are very real. You know, the violent crime rate is far higher than it is in what should be kind of comparable cities, you know, New York or Los Angeles. And it, it struggles with corruption, it struggles with kind of dysfunctional government in many ways. But I think sort of the way it's often framed in the national media in the US, particularly television news, is this idea that the city's failing and collapsing. And the real problem is that Chicago is not making the most of its really quite large opportunity to become, you know, a, a kind of true regional capital and a truly global city that, you know, could compete with kind of New York or or LA or or, uh, or London, you know, on sort of that global level. 
Let's talk about the two men who are vying to be the next mayor, Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson. Can you give us a sense of each of the candidates and what they stand for? And what do you think they might be like if they actually won office and became mayor? Let's start with Paul Vallis. So Paul Vallis is... uh... He's been around Chicago politics for a long time. You know, this isn't his first time running for mayor. He's also tried running for lieutenant governor. He's in the state of Illinois, I mean. And and before that, you know, he's got this long history as a kind of top bureaucrat, both in Chicago, where he ran the public schools, and before that was Richard M. Daly's budget director, that's the former mayor, and several other places. You know, he worked in schools in Philadelphia and in New Orleans um, and a few other places. So he's this kind of guy who stuck around particularly education actually but but you know various parts of of Chicago government for a long time and I think previously you know certainly the last election was seen as a bit of a crank you know a bit of a no-hoper and this election I think he surprised an awful lot of people because he's ran what you know even people who are quite critical of him you know admit as an been a very kind of competent, effective campaign, and he's focused entirely on crime. He's ran from the right, um, and you know, and he came came first in the runoff. Um, and uh, you know, his his essential kind of, if you can sum sum up his message, is we need more cops. We need to fix the crime problem, uh, and only then will everything else in Chicago thrive. And now, how about Brandon Johnson? Well, Johnson, too, is a man who's been around politics for a little while. He's, uh, um, but he comes from really the opposite side of the Democratic Party. And of course, they're both Democrats. But, you know, Vallis comes from the right. He has been endorsed by the cops. Brandon Johnson, his campaign got its kind of big boost when he got the backing of the Chicago Teachers Union last year. And Chicago's Teachers Union has been a kind of growing force in the city's politics. But Johnson is a former public school teacher who then became an organiser. And he's very much on the kind of the left, maybe even the far left of the Democratic Party. He, you know, advocates an awful lot of quite progressive policies, you know, including various tax raises and uh, you know, he's been very critical in the past of policing in the city, um, back to fund the police in 2020 or, or talked about how it was a political goal. So he's running from the left, essentially. And he, he would be, if he wins, one of the most left-wing mayors Chicago has ever had, possibly the most. So it's the candidate of the teachers' unions against the guy who used to run the public school system and is greatly disliked by the teachers' union. Is it better to think about this election in terms of clashing ideologies on the left, do you think? Or do you have to really think about it in terms of the racial identities of different groups of voters? Or is Chicago getting past that kind of politics? So this is, I think, is what's quite interesting about this election. Because, you know, if you look at voter maps in Chicago, they pretty much generally are the same as demographic maps. And that was kind of true of, of the first round of results here, too. Paul Vallis won almost entirely in the, the wards of the city that are majority white. He did quite poorly, relatively speaking, in black wards, which were mostly won by Laurie Lightfoot, in fact. But that's it's kind of not so true of, of Johnson. The irony is that Johnson also did best in wards that are largely white uh, and didn't do particularly well in, in black wards either. And I think... While race will obviously be quite a big 
feature in this election like it has been in every election. I think there are an awful lot of particularly younger white progressives who very much will back Johnson. And I think there are quite a few of older, particularly black voters who are ideologically more conservative, who if this were a race between Laurie Lightfoot and Paul Vallis, I think would vote Lightfoot. But picking ideologically between Vallis and Johnson, I think they might vote Vallis. And I think the sort of the balance of those two groups essentially how black voters in particular who they whether they vote more on racial lines or in these ideological lines and how that splits that's going to determine who wins this and by what margin so i think this may be chicago's kind of least racialized election in quite a long time Idris, before we get to the candidates and to the question of whether this is an election about race and racial identity or whether it's more an election that revolves around ideology, let's talk a little bit about how Chicago's doing. And it seems to me there are a couple of views you can take of the city, a couple of opposing views. One is that crime is so bad, and as Daniel said, so much higher than it is in New York and Los Angeles, comparable cities, and particularly we're talking about homicides there, that that overwhelms everything. I mean, Ken Griffin, the founder of Citadel, which is a huge hedge fund, moved his money and his headquarters out of Chicago a couple of years ago when he said that Chicago is like Afghanistan on a good day. I mean, clearly he was exaggerating, but he gets there at one view of the city. Then there's another view, which I think is you know, where Daniel comes out, which is that you know, actually crime in Chicago is really bad, but it's highly concentrated in some particular neighborhoods. And while that's awful for the people who live in those neighborhoods, it's not necessarily a threat to the success of the city as a whole, and and that actually Chicago is doing okay. Where do you come out on that one? I think uh, Citadel's decision mirrors that of other big companies. So Boeing has left, although they didn't cite crime when they were leaving. Tyson's Food has left. McDonald's CEO has complained about crime in the city. So I think the, the business community is quite annoyed with, with the amount of crime, and they think that it's it's affecting the downtown business district and, and other places where they operate as well. But I think you're completely right that lots of the homicides are foisted entirely upon African Americans who live in highly segregated neighborhoods on the south and west sides, and the homicide rates for African Americans are 20 to 30 times that of white Chicagoans, right? So although crime as a whole is among the highest in, in the country, it's incredibly concentrated. I think Chicago's success rests in the fact that it's an economic magnet for college-educated young people all over the Midwest. It's the natural place you go to if you graduate from the University of Wisconsin, the University of Iowa, you go to school within Chicago itself. It's just a, it's the place that people go to. And I think that has ensured that it has the kind of vibrancy that will make its economy function for the next few decades. John, one of the remarkable things about this election is that the incumbent, Laurie Lightfoot, isn't running because she lost in the Democratic primary. Is it too simplistic to attribute her fall to the high homicide rate in Chicago? Were there a bunch of other things that you think contributed to that? I think that's a little too simplistic. If you look at the results by precincts from the February 28th first round election, Lightfoot did really well in a lot of the south and west sides, a lot of the neighborhoods that are most plagued by violence. So you would think if voters were rejecting her because of her inability to stop the homicides, you would see it show up there first. I think there are a number of factors at play here. Number one, the past few years have just been a really tough time to run a big city. 
COVID has been a huge drag for any incumbent politician. I think with Lightfoot, she just sort of fell between a couple of cracks, and there just wasn't enough there to put together the coalition that put her into office in, in 2019. And so, Idris, now we have this runoff between Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson, who represent opposite wings or different wings of the Democratic Party, right? Vallis is the sort of centrist dad, normie Democrat, Biden tendency, and Johnson represents the progressive tendency. And this is a tension that we see play out again and again in pretty much every Democratic primary, every you know city run by Democrats where these two bits of the party come up against each other. And whilst it seemed to be the case a couple of years ago that the progressives were coming out on top in more and more places, the story of the past year or maybe kind of couple of years uh, since 2020, at least, I think it's been the success of the normie Democrats. I, I think that's exactly right. In San Francisco, you saw voters picked London Breed, the relative moderate, over some progressive challengers. They kicked out, on the other hand, the very progressive district attorney in a recall election. Voters in New York picked Eric Adams, actually in, in a very similar fashion. He was a former cop, but the white voters who lived in Manhattan all preferred the progressive challengers, whereas the more conservative, actually, minority voters in Brooklyn, Queens, the other boroughs voted for Adams by a large degree. We saw at Minneapolis, where there were progressive challengers to Jacob Fry, who was the mayor when George Floyd was killed. He won re-election over the progressive challenge. And I think you're seeing a similar dynamic play out in Chicago today, where Johnson is not only being buoyed by millions of dollars of union contributions, but he was an organizer for the Chicago Teachers Union, which is one of the most progressive unions in the country. They advocate for all kinds of political aims, aside from straightforward teaching. He's seen as a dyed-in-the-wool union guy, whereas Vallis, who was chief executive of the Chicago Public Schools, has a much more contentious relationship with that union. And is a big school choice guy, which is obviously something that the union is, is not going to like. So I think that they they see the world in very different ways. I mean, Vallis is making a lot of uh, Johnson's previous statements about defunding the police, which Johnson is trying very hard to walk away from. Likewise, Johnson is trying to associate uh, Vallis with uh, Donald Trump because the head of the police union is a big Trump supporter. And so they're both trying to tar each other in a, in a quite interesting fashion. I just want to pick up quickly on something that both you, John, and Daniel said in passing, which is that maybe this is the least racialized or race-based election in Chicago's recent history. And Idris just mentioned there the recent mayoral election in New York where Eric Adams triumphed with a multiracial coalition. It seems like that might be a bit of a trend in mayoral elections in American cities at the moment. And if it is, it's a really fantastic one, isn't it? I think there's a risk that we don't celebrate that enough, perhaps. I think you're absolutely right. I think that, that progressive voters in particular have tended to count on African-American votes to assume that African-Americans were a natural constituency. But if you look at a number of polls, you see that white liberals have in the past five, seven years moved farther to the left on racial questions. So what you're seeing is a correction, a sort of bringing the party back to the center, which is what you saw in the 2020 Democratic primary. Okay, we'll hear about a notoriously powerful Chicago mayor and how his legacy still affects the city in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you'd take out a subscription to The Economist. If you're not already a subscriber, then we have a special offer for you, a free 30-day digital subscription. You can go to economist.com slash podcast offer to access that. Idris, John, what are some of the things you've particularly enjoyed reading recently that folks who take advantage of that offer will be able to go and look at? 
I really love James Bennett's Lexington on uh, how to write a good campaign book, which just captured so much of the anger and resentment I feel towards people who author these horribly insipid books that I then have to read. Yeah, that's very good and very funny. How about you, John? I really liked our coverage of the banking crisis. I think it's been very clear-eyed, very level-headed, and I just feel that I understand it much better than I otherwise would have had I not been reading our coverage. Yes, I'd second that as well. Economist.com slash podcast offer is the link to try out a free 30-day digital subscription if you're not already a subscriber. Casket coming out now. Coffin is being borne down the steps. Coffin draped in a city of Chicago flag. Only death could remove Richard J. Daly from power. He spent the last 21 of his 74 years as mayor of Chicago. The year after he was elected to an unprecedented sixth four-year term, he collapsed in his doctor's office. Daly was the last of the big city bosses. Man of the people, attorney, legislator, executive, vote Democratic, vote for Daly. Daly was first elected mayor in 1955. I thank the people of Chicago for their vote of confidence in my public record. No words can express my heartfelt appreciation. In his inaugural address, he set out how he would run City Hall. I am fully aware of the vital importance of the mayor's appointing power, and I will appoint the best men and women available, regardless of political affiliation. This would not be the case. Political machines rewarded loyalty, and Daly ran perhaps the most notorious one. Jobs were given out in return for fealty to his honour, or de boss, as the mayor was known. Many of those who worked for City Hall were precinct captains, These were party members allotted neighbourhoods in the city where they were expected to deliver votes when election day came around. Mayor Daly called Chicago the city that works. And for many, it did. Chicago, America's city in a garden. The most beautiful lakefront in America with a waterfront skyline that has no rival for top beauty honours in the entire Western Hemisphere. Daly oversaw a building boom transforming the skyline of downtown Chicago. Inheritance of early city planning lies the robust, dynamic, exciting, stimulating city which serves and houses some three and a half million people. A university and expressways were built and O'Hare Airport was expanded on his watch. This is O'Hare Field, the world's busiest airport, a fact of which you can be very proud. There was more housing, roads were improved and the streets were cleaner. Most residents got the services they needed, and the city's economy was strong. But it didn't work for everyone. We had what I considered uh, a very meaningful, uh, frank, objective, and uh, exhaustive and comprehensive uh, discussion with the mayor today on all of the problems of Chicago. In 1966... Martin Luther King came to Chicago, concerned about segregation and the quality of housing for the city's African-American residents. But in Richard J. Daley, he met an effective opponent, a man who publicly embraced the idea of racial equality, while in practice doing everything he could to stymie it. 
In fact, some of his big construction projects not only generated cash to oil the machine, they were planned in such a way as to reinforce racial segregation. Even as Daly's patronage machine began to falter not long after his death, his model of governance did not. Later mayors, including his son, Richard M. Daly, and even Rahm Emanuel, Barack Obama's former chief of staff, stuck to his basic strategy. Attract businesses and new residents, try to dissuade current residents from fleeing, and keep violent crime down, if at all possible. Their investment choices and policing strategies, however, did not benefit all residents equally. The city that works still works downtown and in pleasant north side neighbourhoods. But black neighbourhoods on the south and west side have faced soaring murder rates and depopulation over decades as their residents have fled. Chicago's next mayor will not wield the same power or influence as Richard J. Daley and will find it harder to get things done. But he'll still face that same basic problem of trying to manage one of America's most segregated cities inherited from the heyday of the Chicago machine. John, let's stick on machine politics and the Chicago machine in the 20th century. I mean, if you say machine politics in American cities to people in the 19th century, they will probably think about New York and Tammany Hall. But in the 20th century, Chicago is really the capital of machine politics in America, or at least it is among sort of people who are interested in, in politics and political history. Do you have a theory as to why Chicago and why the machine was so long lasting there? I don't know if it was long-lasting or it just came later, right? It seems to me that Tammany Hall and Chicago's machine politics were both a product of similar forces, right? You had a lot of immigrants coming in who were ripe to be organized politically. You had a dense, growing city in both cases that had lots of contracts to be given out and given out quickly. You had ambitious politicians. You had all of those factors that produced these machines. Tammany Hall was broken earlier, but it also formed earlier. And Chicago's just happened to last later. I think the more interesting question is why Chicago remains as corrupt as it does. Why has it not been broken completely? It's true that the daily machine no longer exists, but a disproportionate number of elected officials in Chicago have gone to prison for corruption. And while you see corruption, obviously, in other places, you don't see the same levels for the same length of time. I'm curious why that is. Idris, do you have a theory? I think there is a lot of corruption in, in the city. I was reading that something like 30 aldermen who basically constitute the city council of Chicago have gone to prison for corruption. And I think the city gets an unhelpful reputation from what goes on in state politics as well. You had two consecutive governors who went to prison, uh, Rod Blagojevich, quite famously, for attempting to sell Barack Obama's Senate seat when he became president. You had the Speaker of the Illinois House, Michael Madigan, who had the nickname of the Velvet Hammer, which is a fabulous, fabulous nickname, who is indicted on federal corruption charges. And I think all of that redounds onto the reputation of the city as a whole as well. At the same time, though, if Chicago still had this uh, mayoral machine that was brilliant at getting incumbents re-elected, you wouldn't have seen Laurie Lightfoot lose in the way she had, right? So it seems to me, at least, that the city's quite a bit cleaner than it once was. Maybe that's not saying very much given Chicago's political history in the mid-20th century, but still, it's something to cling on to. I, I haven't read anything to suggest that Lightfoot is anything but one of the cleanest mayors that Chicago's had. 
And Idris, American big city mayors all have the same job title, but in practice, their powers differ a fair bit. How is the Chicago mayor's office different from those in other big cities? In some ways, it's a bit more circumscribed. So, you know, the the city council is supposed to have final say on, on legislative matters. In practice, it's not as weak as in some cities, which hire a city manager that uh, effectively oversees a lot of departments. Um, the Chicago mayor is still in charge of a, a lot of important departments in the city and still has the bully pulpit and the ability to propose legislation before the aldermans. What's different about Chicago is that each of the aldermans has effectively operated as a boss for their district for a long time. Lightfoot tried to tamp that down a bit. But that is one reason why you saw uh, so many of them going to prison, because uh, when you're in charge of your own little fiefdom, the incentive to accept bribes and whatnot is is increased. So in that way, it's it's a bit different from other city councils. The city council there is, is quite powerful, but I think the mayor manages to retain a bit more power than you might expect, given the organization of, of the system. And we certainly saw that with the dailies. Well, one of the hardest things facing Chicago's next mayor will be what to do with the education system. Chicago has too many schools for the number of pupils enrolled in the city, and therefore closing schools is a pretty urgent question. We'll be back in a moment here from a former education secretary and Chicago native about the importance of education in Chicago's mayoral election. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Arnie Duncan was Education Secretary in the Obama administration. And before that, he was in charge of Chicago's public schools. He's from Chicago, and he now runs an organisation that aims to reduce gun violence in the city. Our Midwest correspondent, Daniel Knowles, who we heard from earlier, spoke to him for us. The Chicago mayoral election coming up... It has been almost entirely dominated by discussions of crime. And you run a crime prevention organisation. Tell us a bit more about that and tell us what what is the situation with crime? Why has it dominated this election? Yeah, it breaks my heart, obviously. It's what I'm obsessed with and devoted my life to. To put it in context, Chicago is six times more violent than New York. We are three to four times more violent than L.A. So we are the absolute anomaly (laughs) And it's just incredibly unfair to our children, particularly on the South and West sides, who grew up with a level of violence, fear, and trauma that is beyond unacceptable. And so we have to get to a better place. Um, there are many, many reasons why we are where we are. You know, policies that have, have contributed to the problem, policies that have had unintended consequences, a fear of really dealing with the heart of the issue. <laughs> And that was, again, part of the reason why I set up Chicago Cred. And what we do is we talk about sort of four pillars to get the city to a better place. One is we need much more effective policing. Secondly, we have to serve many more teens and young people and stem the flow into these levels of acute risk of violence. Uh, Third, we need the business community to step up and hire folks who have graduated 
from violence prevention programs like ours and our many partners. And fourth, we have to scale our work. And I'm actually extremely hopeful that if we can start to move in all those areas, not overnight, but over the next three, four, five years, Chicago could become dramatically safer and we can give children their childhoods back again. Going on to the, the, the politics of it, you have these these two candidates, both of whom have been talking a lot about crime, but they have quite different approaches to it. Do you just talk a bit about kind of what you think should be done and how optimistic are you that, you know, out of it, out of whoever the next mayor is, Chicago will get the sorts of policies that you think will work in, in terms of reducing this, this violence and perhaps setting Chicago back onto a track? Chicago has as many or more police than both New York and L.A. per citizen. So if more police by, our, by itself made us safer, we would be the safest city in America. And whether we need more police or not, that's open to debate. But I, I can tell you what we need is more good police. And what has to happen is the police force has to rebuild trust with the community. I work extremely closely with some extraordinary police officers and commanders. But at the structural level, trust between the police and the community is broken. And in the communities where we work, the high violence neighborhoods on the south and west sides, generally, literally 10 to 15 percent of homicides get solved. And if you just shoot someone and don't kill them, that almost never gets solved. So state that another way. You have a 85, 90, 93 percent chance of literally getting away with murder. And you know, I want consequences. I want deterrence. Nobody wants to go to jail. But you have to build trust and rebuild trust with the community if they're going to talk to you about what's, what's going on there. So there's a lot of devil in the details here that goes beyond the sound bites and the talking points that's so, that's so critically important. Talking about a school that you were visiting earlier, and of course, you know, the, the challenges that, that children face, and you know, you have a background in education. Both of the candidates for this race have backgrounds in education too. And there are some questions about what happens in the schools in the city, about how they should be run. I'm first interested, you know, how that connects sometimes to the crime issue. And, and, and are you surprised that that's not been a bigger issue in this election campaign in comparison to, to the kind of constant drumbeat of crime? We're just in a vicious downward cycle here in Chicago, particularly on the west, south and west sides. So that high school that I visited, I won't use his name, when I ran Chicago Public Schools going back 13, 14 years now, my memory is that school had about 1,200 students. Today, that high school literally has under 100 students. It's like a ghost town. And so what you've had, because of the violence, all these things are inter interlinked, because of the, the violence, we've had many black families who feared for their, the health and safety of their sons, particularly, we've had a reverse migration and then moved back down south. And so you've had a hollowing out of these neighborhoods. So you have less jobs. You have less folks on the block going to work. Less students in the school, so you have a smaller tax base. So it's this vicious cycle now, and it has to stop. So if we can get the bullets to stop flying, <laughs> we can get people to you know, come back into the neighborhoods and feel safe to send their kids to school. So you're working at the macro level, but also very, very much, you know, literally child by child, school by school, to see if we can start to turn this in a better direction. Just more generally, how optimistic are you about Chicago? You know, I moved to this city 18 months ago or so, and I feel like a lot of the time people are quite depressed about the city and they talk about the crime, they talk about some of the problems in the schools, they talk about businesses that may or may not be leaving. And uh, I, I sometimes feel like I'm kind of overwhelmed by this, this drumbeat of doom that doesn't really match with what I see. But I'm interested in what you see as a you know, long-term Chicagoan. 
Yeah, so this is, you know, this is my, my heart and my soul. That's why it's so critically important for me to try and get this back. Uh, violence is absolutely the crisis facing the city. It is a cancer eating the soul of our city. When I travel, people used to talk to me about Michael Jordan. When I travel now, all people want to ask me about it on planes and hotels is the violence and the crime. So we are not anywhere near where we need to be. And it is heartbreaking and it is devastating. Whoever wins the election, we as Chicagoans have to unite together and you know work on behalf of our city, for our city, but for our, our city's children. And um, so I am both devastated by where we have been. I know where we are, but I also know where we can go. I get to see what's possible and how much potential folks who have been caught in this cycle of violence, they want out. They're not winning. They want to do something different. So I am, I am absolutely hopeful about where we can go, but devastated by where we are today. Idris, I want to end by talking about schools, but I think given some of the things that Ali Duncan said there, we have to talk maybe a bit more about violence and also the link between high crime neighbourhoods and problems in schools because they are linked. I mean, that statistic that he had that if you live in some areas, the south and the west side of Chicago, you have an 85% chance of getting away with murder. That is problem number one that the next mayor has to solve. There's increasing awareness in education policy circles that what people call adverse childhood events or ACEs compound and lead to these traumatic experiences that so many kids in certain parts of Chicago go through just lead to so much of a worse outcome in, in schools. Actually, there you know we, we saw just a few days ago there was that horrific school shooting in Nashville and you know, there are so many of these in America now that there are studies that you can do on the thousands of kids, and there are thousands of kids who have lived through a school shooting, you know, survived it, but you can track what happens to them later on. And as you'd expect, you know, they have worse outcomes, less likely to graduate from high school, lower incomes, more likely to uh, have mental illness and go to jail themselves. What's happening in Chicago is I don't think that business as usual really does it. I can't agree more. We are failing Chicago's children, failing children in a lot of cities, really. Before I move on to talk about education directly, I just want to point out that the problems that Duncan mentioned, the problems of concentrated crime, concentrated failing schools, are pronounced in Chicago, but they're not unique to Chicago. And they're common to a lot of cities that are losing population. You see similar twin trends in in Detroit, in Baltimore, in St. Louis. One thing it highlights is that it's fairly easy to manage a growing city because there's money coming in and it's mainly a problem of planning and accommodation. It's really hard to manage a city's decline because that decline often is uneven. And in places where it declines, it declines quite quickly. It's really hard to manage that effectively. Yeah, that's so right. I was in Englewood a couple of years ago walking around there and it's just Englewood being on the south side. It's just so like Detroit was 10 years ago, or bits of Detroit were. I mean, you can just see the place emptying out. And there's a second link between high crime in neighbourhoods like Englewood and failing schools, which is that as people leave, schools depopulate. And then you have the problem of trying to keep a school open um, with a very small number of pupils. That leads to huge overspend. I mean, one of the schools that Daniel Knowles wrote about recently in Chicago had a per-pupil spend of $42,000 
which, you know, to Idris's point, indicates that this is not primarily a money problem. And then the mayor has the very difficult job, politically difficult job, of trying to, or having to close down a lot of schools in Chicago and and amalgamate them, which is the kind of job that no politician really wants because it's only downside. I mean, to his credit, Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor, did quite a bit of this, but it looks like the next mayor, whoever that is, will also have to do it. Yeah, that's very hard. And to your point, I mean, a good number of Chicago teachers make over six figures a year. You know, the per people spending is something like $30,000 per student, which is well above the national average. Some of that might be going to keeping these schools open, but a lot is actually going to salaries and the kinds of things that you think should manifest in in higher performance. But what you see is is the exact opposite. You see, you know, NAEP scores just came out for Chicago that showed tremendous declines in math performance that erased about 10 years of growth disproportionately among black and Hispanic kids, as, as learning loss often is. Those are horrendous results. Um, 45% of Chicago school kids are chronically absent, uh, meaning that they're missing days of education. A fifth of them might be on grade level for reading and math. But, you know, in spite of that, um, the graduation rate is going up. You know, it's gone up to 83%. This uh, Chicago abandoned the rating system that it had over the pandemic for its schools on academic performance. And it also stopped holding students who were performing poorly back. So I think the, the business as usual attitude, this idea that if you pay teachers more who strike or pay school professionals more who strike and, and hope for the best, is, it hasn't worked out for Chicago kids for decades. And I don't think that it will if you just keep at it. One of Vallis's planks on education is to allow underpopulated schools to function as magnet schools. That seems to me an implicit decline manager, right? If you're an underpopulated school, you're probably in a neighborhood near other underpopulated schools. If you're a magnet program, by definition, you're drawing kids from other schools. So that's a way to decrease the number of schools that are open and with luck make the ones that remain open better, have them serve their students better. It's interesting to me because last week we were talking about Texas and the politics of growth and very fast population increase. And that kind of politics is just vastly preferable to the politics of managing emptying out neighborhoods, which you have in part of Chicago. Although, as Daniels pointed out, the city center is actually doing pretty well and people are moving back in. And so one of the tasks for the next mayor and for his successors will just be to try and get as many people into the city as possible, because the politics of growth is just preferable to the politics of decline. Okay, guys, before I let you go, I have a Chicago-themed quiz for you. Question one. Chicago's O'Hare Airport used to be the busiest in the world in terms of passenger numbers. In the latest ranking, it came fourth. What were the three airports that were busier than O'Hare? I'm going to give you a clue. The data comes from 2021, when the pandemic meant there was less international travel. So the top three are all in the US. I can guess. I think I know. All of them. I have a good idea too. You do you do travel a lot, so uh, I I think these are going to be the same answers you would do, John. But uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, Charlotte, and Atlanta. I would guess the only one I would replace is is Charlotte with Houston Hobby, or sorry, Houston George Bush. Yeah. Um, you guys got two out of three. So number one was the airport in Atlanta, Hartsfield Jackson. Dallas Fort Worth comes second partly owing to Alexandra's frequent use of that airport. And Denver comes in at number three, which surprised me. Oh, that does surprise me. Weird. I would not have guessed that. Yeah. Do you know about the Illuminati theory? Oh, boy. The Denver airport? 
Hit me. Do you know there's like a possessed blue horse statue in the airport, which is very freaky, which people think the Illuminati installed? That's amazing. Does this account for its extraordinary popularity as an airport? Do you think a lot of people are changing there just so they can, they can see the statue? That I don't know. But I, I think many members of the Illuminati stopped by the airport um, on their way to uh, skiing in Vail and Aspen. <laughs> Be it. Question two. How many passengers pass through Atlanta Airport, the world's busiest, in 2021? If you get within three million, you get a point because Harriet's feeling really generous. I'll guess 21 million. Um, 35 million. You picked the right strategy by going high, but not high enough, Idris. The answer is 75.7 million. Wow. Which is a bit less than the 107.4 million passengers who used the airport pre-pandemic, but still is a good number. All right, well, that's it for this podcast. Thank you, Idris. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. Nicola Rofast is our sound engineer. Special thanks to Daniel Knowles for his help with this episode. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can now find every episode of Checks and Balance in one place at economist.com slash checkspod. Thanks very much for listening to this one. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.